0: Pray with me, please. Our God and King, how thankful we are that You have revealed Yourself to us in so many ways. And One of the grand titles in Scripture tells us about Your character, Your nature, is what we have just sung. You are the Ancient of Days, the God who created time, who dwells outside time, above it, over the sequence of history as we know it. We are thankful this day that there is no God like unto you in all the universe. You have said in your word that before me there were none and there will will be none after me. I am God and there is no other. What joy that gives us. Comfort and peace. How thankful we are that it is not simply that you are the one God in the entire universe, but that you are perfect in every single one of your attributes. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, perfect in holiness and love and righteousness, justice and truth, mercy and grace, and the list goes on. And though we have been given So much information about you, yet there are volumes yet to be opened to us in our understanding because you are the infinite God. How thankful we are that there will never be one moment in future days of eternity where we will come to the final page and the final chapter and say, now we know all things about this God. But we will continue to marvel as you reveal yourself to us in a million more ways. We are most grateful this day that in these last days you have spoken to us in your Son. That he is the definitive word and explanation, the revelation of you in your perfections. How thankful we are for the humility of Christ coming to earth, making himself a servant of all, coming in the likeness of mankind. What a mystery it is that God would become man. And while so many religions of the world seek to become God and leave the status of humanity in order to achieve some kind of divinity, the gospel story is the record of God who became man in order to save broken, sinful, cursed mankind. Thank you. As we open your word this morning and listen again to the very words of Jesus that Mark recorded in his gospel, Spirit of God, as we sang earlier, would you attend the preaching of your word? Come now, Holy Spirit, come. Give life as it is needed in our hearts, give understanding and illumination as we need it, and empower our wills both to believe and do all that you are setting before us. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, that is the second book of the Christian New Testament, and find chapter 13, beginning in verse 14, we'll resume our study. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter today, God willing. Let me read this. You follow along, please. Mark 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand." As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father." Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, I saw it again in the headlines yesterday. It was one of those headlines that I recognized immediately as clickbait, but still it caught my eye. Did any of you see this remarkable headline? Ice dust found on Kilimanjaro may support prophecy. Oh, I wanted to click that so badly. But I thought, you know what? There are a thousand pop-up ads waiting for me if I (laughs) click on that. We talked last week as we worked through the first 13 verses that there's something in all of us that that wants to know the future, and we want to know the signs and the signals and the secrets about what is to come. And Jesus, in answering two really simple questions that his disciples put forward about what will be the sign of your coming and when will these things take place, he actually redirects their attention to some priority things. He talked even last week about the danger of false Christs and false prophets and and all kinds of things. There's another little headline that caught my eye yesterday, and maybe it did yours as well. Televangelist Jim Baker ordered by Attorney General to stop selling fake cure for coronavirus. I thought, you know, sign of the times. A religious leader taking advantage of a present crisis, and maybe, you know, there's a little sincere desire in his heart to help a few people along the way. I think it's probably more about being able to move some product. Of course, at this moment, I wish that I owned Charmin (laughs) or at least some stock in it, right? You see, we live in a society that's ever alert for a little change in the wind that might signal some doom, some gloom, some crisis that is headed toward us that that we should know about it and then take appropriate steps. We live in a day of morbid curiosity. And in so many ways, we are no different from the disciples of 2,000 years ago or even the people who put together headlines like these. Eschatology is the study of last things. That's what the word eschatology has reference to. And Jesus, in this particular chapter, is actually pointing us toward the eschaton. That's a term that, that we could use. It's a more formal term. But, but he's actually teaching what things matter most as you anticipate the end of the age. And you remember last week, I gave you a couple little pointers Uh, categories, terms that emerge in this chapter, and I think there are kind of two headings under which we can break most of the chapter apart, and the first term is these things, and last week we looked at verses 1 through 13 that have to do with these things, and I believe, agree with others Uh, uh, such as this particular commentator who writes, Mark intends readers to understand these couple of sections with reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That little phrase, these things, seems to be pointed more toward an immediate catastrophe that was on the horizon, the destruction of the temple. Now, today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter, and it kind of falls into three sections, if you will, Uh, But we'll go back and forth a little bit between these, and you'll see these things. I really am not going to make a big, big deal about these things and those days. But whereas these things seem to have more direct reference to the coming destruction of the temple itself, those days is a term that seems to have reference to the end of the age and some of the huge events that will unfold just before Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man, will return. Now, in our study, I touched on this last week, but let me remind you, Jesus actually de-emphasizes the timing of these events and focuses our, our attention on his present gospel purposes. He was doing it for the disciples in the first century, and I believe he's doing it for his followers today in the 21st century. A helpful quotation that I shared with you a week ago and want to take you back to again Uh, comes from a a commentary that's been very helpful for me, The Gospel According to Mark. This is James Edwards who writes, The purpose of this eschatological discourse, that is a, a, a teaching time that has to do with the end of the age, the purpose of this teaching is not primarily to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. You know, you can be so caught up in trying to, uh, trying to unravel the mysteries, even in the scriptures, whether it be Daniel's prophecies or revelation, or one chapter like Mark 13, that you actually become useless in the greater gospel mission that Jesus has called us to. I think we should study it. As a matter of fact, I felt great frustration this week that I didn't pay closer attention in my Daniel and Revelation class I had many years ago. Because there's stuff here I'm like, you know what, my timeline is a little fuzzy in certain things and I really would like to know. And so I'm probably going to spend a little more time in the coming days. But even this week I had to fight not to become sidetracked by you know, the number of the beast and all those scary things that unfold in the book of Revelation and what does it mean and what could it possibly signal and focus on the things that Jesus is making really clear and really plain in Mark 13. So let's do our best to understand what Jesus says we need to know and practice in the last days. Now go back to verse 14 with me, and let's begin to make our way paragraph by paragraph through the balance of this chapter here. Notice, first of all, that Jesus describes a visible sacrilege and says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and that's a little term that appears in other places in the Scripture, but he says, when you see this Abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. And notice it's, it is a personal pronoun with reference to a figure. And then Mark inserts the words, let the reader understand. What is Jesus speaking of? Well, you know what's interesting? If you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll find that Jesus seems to be using some of the very language right out of Daniel's prophecy. You could jot this down, go back to it later, but in Daniel 9, chapter 11, and then chapter 12, the particular verses that I've noted there on the screen, screen, he makes reference to this similar event and similar terminology, So Jesus is not making something up on the spot, but rather he is directing the hearts of of his disciples back to the Old Testament scriptures. And he's speaking of something, though, that is quite catastrophic. You could also understand that phrase, abomination of desolation, with these two words, an appalling sacrilege. Something so uh, grievous to the people of God that they would abandon the temple as a place of worshiping the true God. Something so destructive to their practice itself that there seems to be no remedy. Now, for a number of years, many thought that uh, Daniel's prophecies in particular were fulfilled when Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, entered Jerusalem in 168 BC. So you add that time to the the almost 30 years of Jesus, and we're talking 200 years prior to Christ speaking, there was a catastrophic event where a Roman uh, ruler came in and built an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings and offered a pig on it. And that was considered by many to be the abomination of desolation that Daniel had prophesied. But we know that Jesus' present prophecy in the time of Mark would exclude that as being the ultimate fulfillment, wouldn't we? So maybe a type of what was yet to come something so grievous and horrific in the, in the Jewish mind that they would begin to understand the intensity of what Jesus is describing here but not the, the direct fulfillment. Others believe that what Jesus fore- foretold was fulfilled about a decade after him when another Roman ruler came into Jerusalem and committed atrocious acts or even 30 years later when the general Titus rolled in and besieged Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed the temple and took it apart as Jesus had prophesied. But if you look at the specifics uh, of what those two different events held, it's just not a one-for-one match. By the way, it, it gave a little perspective as I went through some of the historical writings. You could read Josephus. Uh, he's an ancient historian who recorded some of what took place in Jerusalem and, and even what Christians experienced in that first century, and it, it's just beyond the imagination. Probably the closest taste that our present generation has had is when ISIS was on that horrific roll. And, and executing and slaughtering and just terrorizing believers. And we've seen images or heard reports that just put us on our faces before God. Well, these things, though, Jesus says, to use last week's terminology from the early part of the chapter, are the birth pains. And he told us, don't be surprised, right? Right? I think what Jesus is describing seems to fit better with what Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. And that's a letter that Paul actually composed about eighty fifty, 50. So 20 years approximately after Jesus spoke this particular prophecy, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. "'Let no one deceive you in any way,' Paul writes, "'for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed.'" The son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It's going to be a remarkable day. Now, notice this. The next thing that Jesus does, though, is to urge a swift escape. For those who are alive at this time, verses 14 and following describe, um, Jesus describes how they ought to flee to the mountains. Then he says in verse 14, let no one who's on the housetop uh, go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. That, that would have been that outer garment that, that would keep you uh, warm and dry against the elements. It would be considered a necessity if you were going anywhere outside of your home property. What's Jesus' point? Your life is more pr- precious than any possession in that Critical hour. And then notice in verse 17, he emphasizes the difficulty of the hour. For he says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Your life is already stressful enough caring for a little one, isn't it? Can you imagine having to escape when the weather is bad, when a river like the Jordan River is swollen and you need to cross it so you can flee up into the hills and and find a, a safe place? Some of you young moms would be very sympathetic with right, that right now. It's such a production just to get out of the house and all the gear that you have to carry with you, right? Man, can you imagine if you were running for your life? stress that would be? It's a difficult hour. It calls for a swift escape. So there is a visible sacrilege that begins to set things in motion. And then in the second Uh, paragraph for our consideration today, or really verse 19. uh, Jesus says, in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. It's unprecedented cataclysm. Now, I got to tell you, if you just go back through history and you read of some of the cataclysmic moments and think that what is coming will be far greater than anything this world has seen, I mean, that takes my breath away. If we were alive 100 years ago, many of us would be thinking that if World War II wasn't signaling the return of Christ and anti, or World War I uh, wasn't you know, signaling the end, then World War II was about to do it. Hitler had to be the Antichrist. I mean, millions of Jews slaughtered. You just think about that one event, but, but that's not the only cataclysmic event in human history. There's scores and scores of other moments, but Jesus is saying it will be a day of unparalleled tribulation. Now, he uses the word tribulation that is translated in other places in the scriptures for times of stress or pressure, But he does seem to be using it in a more formal sense as we find it in eschatology. It's found in a number of prophetic writings, not only here in Mark 13, but you would find it used specifically in Revelation 6 through 19. And you could look particularly at chapter 7. And I would commend that to your reading. Because it does seem to be not just a a season of suffering or of pressure, but a duration of time. The period that we often refer to as the tribulation, it's expressed in Daniel uh, in terms of seven years, and revelation confirms that as well. And the whole period is sometimes even called the revelation. There's an article that is placed just before uh, that particular noun, the tribulation. Some commentators believe it refers to what Jeremiah describes as the time of Jacob's trouble or in Zechariah 14, the day of the Lord. And although the the expression does not limit itself to the time of the tribulation, it is certainly used with reference to extraordinary moments or unparalleled pressure. In Daniel 12, verse 1, though, Daniel prophesied that a time shall arise When Michael, the great prince, he's one of God's chief angels, the prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book." In Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17, we read, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, listen to this, listen to their cry, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And the answer is no one stands against God in that day when he comes. I think these are some of the very prophecies that the Lord has in mind as He begins to speak to His beloved disciples about coming days where there will be unparalleled tribulation for those who are not following Him. And we know they're intended for those who do not follow Him because in the next verse, look at verse 20 of Mark 13, He speaks of a merciful restriction. For he says, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, and I believe those are simply the ones, to use Daniel's terminology, whose names are found written in this book. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So will God's people be present on earth during this tribulation? At least some of them will be. It may not be you and me do have other parts of my eschatology that that include the rapture, as many of you do, and this church holds too, but that's not what Jesus is talking about, so I don't really want to spend too much time there. But I am struck by the fact that, that God has the good of his people in view and recognizes that if these days go longer, my people will not survive. And I consider all of that Both what Jesus says in reference to the elect whom he chose, the ones for whom he will shorten these particular days. I think of what Daniel wrote concerning those whose names are written in the book. Other passages of scripture that refer to it as the Lamb's book of life and recorded there are the names of all of those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's how your name gets in that book. the question for you to consider this morning is this, is your name written in that book? You say, well, how would I know? Well, you receive the, the witness of the scripture that says those who have called upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who are turning away from their sins and turning in faith to Jesus Christ are the elect. They're the ones whose names are written there. So the question is, have have you done that and are you doing it? If you can answer that affirmatively, well, yes. I don't do it perfectly, but yes, I believe Jesus is the Christ. I'm trusting Him for the forgiveness of my sins and the gift of eternal life. Then great, you rest assured your name is there. But if you are actually saying, well, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing, oh, friend. Listen to Him when He calls you. Hear His command to turn away from your sin and come to Him for the forgiveness of your sins in eternal life. We're going to get to the end of this text and see Jesus' strong warnings to stay awake, to be alert, because you don't know when the last day will arrive. You don't know when you will draw your last breath. In our prayer meeting this morning, Terry was... Sharing a request, a friend of theirs whose wife got up, getting ready to go to work one day and dropped dead of a heart attack. No sign, apparently. Nobody anticipating that that day would come. You're not guaranteed one more breath. Why would you mess with your eternal destiny then? You don't have to live in uncertainty. You don't have to live in fear of the future days, but you can actually experience the confidence that that comes out of knowing your soul is secure, your sins are forgiven, that Christ is your Savior. Do you have confidence today that your name is in this book? Well, there's not only a merciful restriction for the saints, but there's an urgent warning then that Jesus adds to this. Look at verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Now now he's come back around because in the first 13 verses he talked about one of the signs of the end of the age will be false Christ to arise. And we actually looked at a, a few samplings, both from Christ's day. Or shortly thereafter, after his ascension, there were, there were some even in the days of the disciples that rose up and said, I'm, I'm Jesus. We looked even in our own nation's history over the last couple hundred years. There have been a number of people who have stepped forward saying, I'm the Messiah. Well, Jesus comes full circle or returns to this particular point and says, do not believe it. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. And here's their intention, to lead astray if possible, the elect. So there's great pressure on the saints during this season uh, from, from just the way the, the world is under God's judgment uh, at that particular point. But there's also this spiritual pressure, temptation to follow false Christs. And they're doing it for the purpose of leading people astray. What, what a pernicious thing That in the hour where people need to know the truth, where they need to understand who Jesus is and what he has done by his life and death and powerful resurrection, that the destiny of their souls is attached to what they do with Jesus. There are some who are trying to rip them away from this gospel. And Jesus issues a warning. And so in verses 5 and 9, the first two warnings had come. And here in verse 23, urgent warning number 3, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So what a time. What a time. Well, this leads us to the the third, and I think the greatest truth in this chapter, the greatest reality. That's actually a picture of, of Salt Lake, if you can kind of see that there on the bottom of the screen, and and one of our beautiful sunsets, actually. But this picture captures so much hope for me uh, because that light that is streaming across the valley, to me, as I've seen this picture through the years, I just think, you know, this valley needs light. I need light. But notice what Jesus says with reference to this visible coming. First of all, in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And so it's not just an astronomical event. There's also uh, the, the demise of global and universal powers and authorities. But are you struck by the contrast in this passage as I was Uh, by the contrast of, of darkness with light and truth and error, so many of them that exist, but I've never thought of it this way before, but as I was reading this this week and thinking about the sun and the moon and the stars no longer giving their light, I thought to myself, you know, it's God himself ultimately who's dimming these lights. And why do we dim lights? Well, there may be a number of reasons for them, but any of you ever involved in theatrical performances And people come in uh, to to see maybe a play or a musical or a movie or something like that. And and there's that period of time where there's general conversation going on and and people are finding their seats and such. But, But when those lights begin to dim, that's the signal, isn't it? Pay attention. Because the really important thing is about to happen. And it struck me this week that even though that's a catastrophic event, and if you're alive on planet Earth and the sun is not bright and, and the moon's not doing its thing at night and you're watching the stars go out and some of them fall from the sky, I mean, you're trembling, aren't you? But God's getting your attention because the thing, perhaps, that many of those people who experienced that were unwilling to consider and look at it that day is about to be set before them in an undeniable fashion. And what does the Lord say is about to happen? Well, before he gets to the, the, the really big event, I, I want to add this in too, that he is actually uh, quoting from some of the Old Testament prophets like, Joel 2 and Joel 3, and the same phrase is repeated in both of those passages with reference to the sun and the moon being darkened and stars not shining their light any longer, and also from Isaiah 13 verses 9 through 13, and there's a little portion there on the screen. And I, I think it is significant that our Lord continues to preach the Word. And just put that out there for your consideration. This This book that we hold, it's precious and it's dear for many, many reasons, but this is the word of God. And even in his final hours before the crucifixion, as Jesus is seeking to grab the attention and understanding of his disciples, he's exegeting this word. And he's not saying, now let me tell you what Joel says or Isaiah says, but he's quoting phrases that they would have been familiar with. Beloved, we can never get away from the priority of the word. And here he is, as one author writes, grounding the hope of his disciples solely in the prophetic words. It's a reminder to us that it is only by the will and power of God that the created order will dim and be dissolved. I say to you again, it's the reason I'm not worried about global warming. I'm just not. And you shouldn't be either. No false Christ, no false prophet, no world leader has the power to do what God himself is is doing in this particular passage. And God will dim the heavenly lights when he determines it's time for the house lights to go down because I'm about to illuminate the grand stage of history and not just with a light, but with the Son of Man. Look at the text with me. For in verse 26, we read, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There's there's not going to be any mistake when Jesus arrives. No question whatsoever. His his arrival is described in other passages as a flash of lightning. You know, when when lightning flashes in front of you, you don't have to wonder, was that that lightning? Because if the light (laughs) didn't temporarily blind you, the thunderclap that follows immediately is going to get your attention. One author writes, the longing that things ought not to be as they presently are and cannot be allowed to remain as they are is an eschatological longing. And don't we all feel that in our souls? Life is not the way it ought to be right now. Something must change or we will lose our minds. That's, that's how so many of us feel right now. But, but this verse has great hope for us. The, the author goes on to say, the grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the word of Jesus, in the assurance that in those days, humanity will no longer usurp history but will relinquish it to its Lord and maker who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil, hallelujah to end suffering, hallelujah and gather his own to himself and lest we wonder if his coming will accomplish everything there are two important adjectives to describe his coming Power and glory. And those are modified by the word great. That word power has reference to achieving power. That means he can do what he intends to do. So many of us have really good intentions, don't we? And we even promise people things from time to time and say, you know, I'll be there to help you uh, pack up your house and move. Or I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll be there to pick you up from the airport. And then what happens? What happens? You're struck with the flu. You get a flat tire. Somebody more important calls and says, I gotta have you here right now. And suddenly the thing that with all sincerity and and love and good intentions, you, you thought you would do, you can't. There's nothing about Jesus that is inadequate, but rather when he comes with this great power, it is power that is able to do everything he intends, achieving power divine power and what he purposed from before the foundation of the world will come to its proper climax and fulfillment as the saints are rescued and rebels are judged only jesus has this kind of power but he also comes in glory and I love this, and if you look at the text with me for just a moment and just set your, your, your minds free to imagine through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit at this particular moment, we know that God's glory uh, has two different components, and one is a visible component. It is the visible, rainbow-like display of His manifold perfections. It, it's what Moses begged Him to see, and God said, I can't show you the full rainbow display of my perfections, but I'll show you a part. And it caused Moses to be transformed. They had to hang a veil over his face. He was just like a mirror. He wasn't even God's glory in person. It was just a reflection. And the people said, we can't look at you. It's what Ezekiel saw as God revealed his glory. It's it's transformational. But there's also that component where we speak of God's glory. It just has reference with all that he is. His manifold perfections. That he is holy and righteous, he's just and true, he's loving, he's kind, he's merciful, he's wise, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. I mean, we have all kinds of attributes that we assign to God because he's revealed those to us. Well, Jesus is coming with the full display of that glory. And as he is unveiled, the splendor of his person, that same splendor that put men like Moses on their faces and women like Mary to tremble in fear and disciples like Peter to, to babble with foolish suggestions. You remember that the Mount of transfiguration? It will be both a blinding and illuminating radiance. But it is the grand signal of the salvation of God's people. It's the same glory that we taste oh so faintly right now but Every once in a while, you feel like you get just a little grasp on it and and you break out in song. Or even as we're singing, as we did earlier, there's some truth that strikes you about how great God is, or how good He is, or how loving He is, and, and your heart actually opens up. And that moment of spontaneous praise is just a little glimpse of what it will be in that great day when the Son of Man appears in great glory. Isn't this the kind of Savior and King you want? who's not only going to make a great appearance, but as he comes, is able to do everything he purposed from long ago. (laughs) And you think you're going to stand against him in that day? You think you might offer to him an alternative way of salvation? You think you might make some argument that betters your position in his presence There's nothing, my friends, there is nothing that will stand against the glory of Jesus Christ in that great day. Why do you resist now? Come to him, that he may be your savior, your redeemer, that you may anticipate with great hope and expectation this coming. Well, and that leads us to the the last really hopeful point here, the saints will be gathered Verse 27, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. That is, we could also say the four corners of the earth. He's been doing a mighty work of redemption for thousands of years. It will come to a completion in that grand moment, and, and he's not going to lose one of them. Things prophesied long ago. There are scriptures there. I don't have time this morning to walk you through those things, but in that moment, all of Christ's people, the ones For whom he died, those that he has purchased with his powerful incorruptible blood will be gathered from every sprawling metropolis and the most remote, unknown corners of the earth. The gospel mission will be finished, salvation accomplished, and as as is described in other places in the New Testament, so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a grand climax. But now we look at it by faith. Can't put any of these images on the screen. They haven't happened yet. But what does Jesus say? Well, again, he brings us back, not to timetables or time frames, but look at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. So here's some final exhortations that we'll take away from this. What's the lesson of the fig tree? Well, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Woohoo! We're all waiting for summer, aren't we? I took my dog for a walk two days ago. Did our usual thing, and you know, there's just been snow on the sidewalks, especially the shady ears, for so long. Well, you know what? Two days ago, I'm walking down a place, not only is the snow gone, I did a double take because I looked down and there's a tiny little crocus that's pushed up and it just bloomed. And that was a happy, happy moment. <laughs> I thought about trying to tell my dog Bristol, Look at that flower, isn't that glorious? But she's a dog. <laughs> well, there's a similar simple lesson. The Lord's saying, you know what to think when you see leaves. Summer's coming. You know what to think when a little crocus pushes out of the ground. Winter is leaving us. Warmer days are ahead, right? And he's saying, then you be aware of what's coming. Let's keep reading in a text because it's not just a, a biology lesson at this particular point. No, verse 29. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, even as we're trying to sort out our eschatology, we need to remember that everything God has told us and everything that He has promised will come to pass. There, there are things that I'm sure until Jesus actually comes and I'm in His presence and you're in His presence that, that we, just, we just won't fully understand. And at the right moment, he'll walk us into his eschatology class in heaven and he'll put his perfect chart on the wall and go, you know, you guys got close and you were well-intentioned, but mm, here is how it goes. This is what I always planned. And we'll go, oh, how could we be so lame? You mean that arrow does come all the way down? It doesn't have a little, I'm joking now. He's saying, learn the lesson, but focus on the most important thing. And, and and I think one of those is that his word will not pass away. You can bank your life on it. You can bank your destiny on it. Then the second thing that he says, stay awake and do the work. Look at verse 32. Concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. That's a curious thing. I think that has reference to his, his time of incarnation. Certainly the sun now knows after his ascension, but at that particular moment, he, he says only the Father. So, so what does that do? That puts the questions in perspective, doesn't it? There's some things you can ask, but he's not answering them. When will Jesus come? No one knows. Well, could he come this, this afternoon? No one knows. Could he come next year? No one knows. Could he come a 1,000 years from now? No one knows. I'm starting to sound like an irritated dad, aren't I? Jesus is not irritated when he says, no one knows, but he's driving to another point. Look at verse 33. Here's what's important for you right now, disciples of mine. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Now to further illuminate, he says it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. There's a reminder, we have work to do right now. Our, our Lord, who's like this homeowner, he, he's gone away for a time, but he's coming and he's given us commands like the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. That is, be alert, be attentive to the task before you, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, which that's about 3 a.m., or in the morning, that would be about 6, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Stay awake. Are you catching the big point? Stay awake. Be alert. Stay awake in the work that he's given us to. And this is where I go all the way back to verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And I know there were some interesting discussions. Several of you came to me this week saying, you know, in our community group, we, we threw out a couple of ideas about how that might be accomplished. And I'm not here to tell you that. I, I, I know perfectly, you know, how even that is going to be accomplished. But that is our present task. One of the last words that Jesus spoke to the disciples was go into all the world and make more disciples. And praise God, they did it because that's the reason you and I are sitting here in these seats, as I've told you often. Nobody, Riverton wasn't even on the map in the first century, but it was on God's map And Jesus knew that over many decades and hundreds of years and a couple of centuries that there would be people living here who need to hear the gospel. And some of us are seated in these chairs today because those first followers of Jesus were faithful to say, we're going to go into all the world and make disciples. And then the next generation took the baton and ran with it. And another one and another one and another one. And now we're running with the same baton. And I don't know how much time we have left, beloved, but we have to give ourselves to the same work and to remain awake and alert in it. So as we think this through, a couple of points come to mind very quickly. First of all, are you in right relationship with Jesus Christ personally? Are you in right relationship with him? Because you don't know when you're, time is going to come up it could be that the lord who gave you life and breath says no more breaths for you and that's it or it could be that you live out your days thinking all is fine but then this great appearing takes place and you are left outside of the faith your name never being written in the lamb's book of life and you will be in deeper trouble than you can fathom now number two are you actively serving him Are you actively serving him? Now, here's a good little exercise to go through. How much of your day is spent reading headlines versus reading the word? How much of your day is spent keeping up with social media versus serving people? How much of your day is spent in front of entertainment outlets versus just in the presence of God, in prayer, with others, or even alone? That top row is not inherently sinful, but if that actually dominates more of your daily schedule than the bottom line, you're not where you ought to be. There aren't time quotas given to us in the Bible about how much time you ought to read the word or be in prayer, but, but you know when it's a priority, don't you? You know when serving others is a priority over serving self. And you know the scary thing to me as I was thinking a little bit about this with reference to social media and forms of communication like that, it can give you a sense that you're actually engaged with people in a meaningful way and that you may actually be serving them, but I'm doubtful because I know in my own heart the, the kinds of things that are taking place and there's a vast difference between engaging in, in what very often is a very impersonal way through forms of of social media and such, and then actually grabbing a person, a real life person. You can do it the old-fashioned way over the phone, or even more old fashioned, and say, let's meet. And some people you need to meet with so you can say, Can I tell you about Jesus? And other people you need to get with and say, Can I encourage you in Jesus? And can you encourage me? Because I'm struggling, brother. I'm struggling, sister. And and so we encourage one another and build one another up in the faith. You say, that, that seems so simple, and it seems like so much of the Christian life comes back to this. I know, but that's pretty much where Jesus left us, didn't he? Just, just a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the, the commandment. The greatest commandment is really twofold. Love God with all you are, love others. And you can't do one without the other. That's why, in answer to that one question, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus put both of those together. Are you in right relationship with Jesus personally, and are you truly serving him now, with the time that you have. Would you bow your heads with me, please? There's great hope for us. His promises are sure. Jesus will return in power and glory. He will judge the rebels, and he will deliver the saints. You do not have to wonder if that will happen. We may wonder when, but you don't have to wonder if. Father, as we seek your face and submit to your word, even though there's a great deal that we don't understand here and We ask that you would direct our hearts to those things that you have truly established as the priority, and that in confidence and faith, we would embrace your word and your will for us. We're thrilled to think that you will come in great power and glory one day and and, and make all things right. The injustices that we feel right now that so discourage us, and, and we wonder, will there Will there ever be anyone who could move our, our society and culture in the right direction? You've just answered it for us. And you've said, I will. Part of us says, We can't wait, Jesus. Come now. We we just we're so weary. Yet at the same time, we know there are billions on this planet, many of whom who have never even heard the gospel. So for their sakes, don't come. Don't come until someone, and maybe even some right out of this congregation, have been able to go and tell them the good news of the God who created them, the Son who entered the world, dying in their place. So we're torn. But our hope is in you. Do your good work in us. Secure every soul here, By your saving power, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.